Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. On today's episode, we will be recapping a truly bizarre week two in college football. Upsets all over the country, all over the ranking polls, and uh, looking ahead to week three, the games that will be going on this Saturday, the 17th of September. Uh, we'll also be doing an extra long hot seat segment today as we write a eulogy for old buddy old pal Scott Frost as the Cornhuskers let him go on Sunday after the loss to Georgia Southern there in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, so we'll miss uh, having him as the feature star at the top of our hot seat segment every single week. We'll get to that towards the end. For now, sit back, relax, and here is what happened in week two. So on a day where there were upsets all throughout the day, all over the country, it started out with Alabama, Texas in Austin on big noon kickoff. Bama was about a 21-point favorite going into this matchup. Um, I didn't expect this to be close. Most people didn't expect this to be close, at least no one that was wearing uh, anything other than burnt orange. I don't think thought it was going to be a terribly close matchup in the second quarter, second half. Um Really, really bizarre game. A lot to get to. Uh, so, first of all, it has been announced that Quinn Ewers sprained his clavicle, which I think put him out. It was approximated four or five weeks. Uh, someone on Twitter pointed out that the earliest possible game he could return based on that timeline was the Red River shootout in Dallas against Oklahoma in early October. So hope that he has a speedy recovery because he came out absolutely guns a-blazing in the first quarter. Ewers looked really sharp uh, against Alabama in the first quarter after he didn't have the best outing week one. He didn't do horrible, but there were some questions going into this game with just the lack of real game experience that he had going against a talented defense like Alabama's. He was, of course, hurt at the very end of the first quarter after he had already driven Texas down the field twice. Uh, he got hit when he was he kind of was running backwards and turned around and leaped in the air and tried to make a hero throw that just ended up going out of the back of the end zone. But he got slammed down and hit right on his collarbone, and it was pretty clear that he was instantly in a lot of pain. Um, unfortunately, those injuries aren't rare, especially with quarterbacks. So it was easy to see that he wasn't going to return. Hudson Card popped in. He got hurt himself, although nothing nearly as serious, but he was definitely limping around there in the second half, especially. And while he didn't come out and have nearly as strong of a performance like Ewers did, he also didn't make any massive mistakes that allowed Texas to be in this game. Alabama really figured him out in the second quarter, talked about it, at halftime and then came out in the second half and didn't allow Texas to do much of anything. The problem for Alabama is that Texas wasn't allowing them to do anything on offense most of the game either. Uh, they Both teams came out and had two great first drives. The first quarter looked like it could, uh, it could be a total shootout game that got up into the 40s even for both teams. Um, and then in the second and third quarter and half of the fourth quarter, Texas just absolutely shut Alabama down. The offensive line was really struggling with the horns front. Their defense was playing really fast and really physical. And the secondary was just made it 
to where Alabama's receivers were basically non-existent for almost the whole game until those final last couple drives when Bama's backs were up against the wall. Jameer Gibbs wound up being the best receiver for the Tide. I believe he had 76 yards receiving, and every other receiver combined had a total of 108. So Gibbs came through really huge, including that touchdown that really gave Alabama some life again in the fourth quarter. Alabama had the most penalties in the Saban era, which is hard to believe, but it was a lot of shooting Alabama's self in their foot. Um, you know, I mean, we saw Will Anderson alone, I think, at three offside calls and a bonehead late late hit, unnecessary roughness. Uh, there were tons of false starts, delays of games, and pass interferences as well, which that's a little bit different of a penalty than the others, but... Just a lot of really, really stupid mental mistakes that you normally don't see from a Saban team. Uh, So I'm sure they had a fun day at practice the last couple days when they were were in Tuscaloosa after the game. There was a lot of uh, noise on Twitter and social media after this game, per usual, saying, oh, Alabama got bailed out by the refs. At first, I thought so too, but then when I went back and watched the highlights a couple times, I realized the crazy safety play um, that ended up getting bailed out by the referees calling a roughing the passer and targeting, which wound up neither of those being true either. It was actually a great play by Bryce Young to keep himself up in the end zone, throw the ball towards an eligible receiver downfield to keep the safety and the refs, while the first initial calls were quite boneheaded, they actually came out and just made some shit up and said, hey, you could basically tell they realized how bad they messed it up when they were reviewing it and said, you know what, never mind third down, which I'm a fan of them doing that. I would rather them admit they made a stupid mistake in the heat of the moment as opposed to just trying to cover their asses and rolling with whatever the stupid call was that everyone in America could see wasn't a roughing the passer or targeting or Bryce Young being down or grounding in the end zone. So that play ending up just being a gigantic wash uh, really was the fairest thing for both sides. I've seen a couple other holding uh, there was one really bad face mask, face mask that was missed. I know that for sure. But you know what? Everyone loves to get on Alabama's ass after we win a close game. Because, of course, there's going to be a holding call that's missed on Alabama at some point over a four-quarter football game. Uh, the face mask was pretty obvious. Um, those of you who remember that one, they had just called a face mask, I think, earlier on that drive. Um, But we got him again, got away with it. And hey, guess what? This might be kind of hard for some of you to wrap your mind around. But there were some calls on Alabama that weren't exactly justified either. And missed calls on Texas through the course of the game. So we'll call it a wash. My hat's off is to Texas. Um, I mean, their defense really played a hell of a lot better than anyone could have expected. Of course, just the deja vu with Quinn Ewers and the Colt McCoy thing that's turned into such a running joke and a bit of a meme for the past almost decade and a half. I know it has to be eating the Texas faithful alive. Uh, It certainly would be with me if I was pulling for them. Um, It just sucks that he had to go out so early in that game when he was looking so good. So uh, I'm not going to make any Quinn Ewers jokes on here, at least about if only or what if and everything, because it was a great game, hard fought. And um, I hope that he can recover and have a really strong maybe back half of the season whenever he returns. Um, So hats off. But at the end of the day, you know, the more talented team won. And we all saw why Bryce Young 
was the Heisman Trophy winner last year because this really felt a lot like last year's Iron Bowl to me, just with how Bama was shut down for almost the entire game, the first quarter, you know, aside. Then when when it was truly time to to score or go home with an with a loss, Bryce stepped up and some of the receivers finally woke up on those last couple drives for Alabama. Um, that's kind of a whole nother topic of discussion, but they're going to have to come through. Thankfully, Bama has a couple couple easy games coming up uh, with ULM, which I don't know if we've played them since they beat us in 2007. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, And then Vandy the next week. And then we go to Arkansas, which we'll talk about them later. But that's looking like a harder and harder game every single week uh, against the Hogs, especially up there in Fayetteville. So Alabama, a lot to learn from. Um, I think we also learned that Will Reichard should be on everyone's Heisman ballot as of right now. <laughs> he is the best thing that has ever happened to me with Alabama football. Bryce might be the best player in the country, but Will just having a guy like that that can go out and kick the field goal and not cause me to go into a spiral of stress every time I think about an extra point going up in the air is truly a blessing that I was not able to enjoy for many, many, many years. So shout out to Will Reichard, absolute stone cold killer along with number nine. Um, now with Texas or one more thing on Bama, sorry. Um, you know, they did not look good at all for most of the game. Maybe Texas is a little better than we thought. Maybe Bama's a little bit worse than we thought. You know, probably probably both true. Um, but this type of game can sometimes help you out. Um, we've seen teams in the past, you know, even though it wasn't a loss, it almost felt like one <laughs> for most of the game and even afterwards because of just how shocking it was with all the penalties and poor execution all over the field. But sometimes maybe this will be a wake-up call. I didn't think this team would need one after the way that last season ended. Um, I thought they would come out firing on all cylinders, and then maybe when you get a little deeper into the groove of the schedule, you can tend to lull and you know slip up on an SEC team or something. But maybe this is going to be a wake-up call that sends Bama – you know, on a better trajectory for the rest of the season. Like I said, they have a couple weeks to figure it out. Um, but maybe this team is just going to be really undisciplined all year. I really hope not, but um, we'll see. Last year, I thought that the ending of the Florida-Alabama game would be a bit of a wake-up call for the Tide. A couple weeks later, I thought the A&M game would be a wake-up call for the Tide. Then I thought the LSU game would be a wake-up call for the Tide. Then I thought Auburn, and like I guess the Auburn one finally did the trick because they played their best game of the year after that in the SEC Championship, but... You just never know. It's a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. Sometimes it can just be hard to predict, even with a system so stable as Saban's. But uh, that's it for Bama. Um, I went a little longer than I thought there, but still trying to bring my heart rate down from the game. Now for Texas. I know no one really wants a moral victory. They're ready to just have this thing rolling, and that's understandable. But it's all about how is Texas going to respond as well. Because last year they came out, lost a very, very hard-fought game to Oklahoma in, uh, in October. And then a couple weeks later, they turn around and lose to Kansas. 
And it's like you thought that maybe this Oklahoma game last year, even though Texas didn't beat the Sooners, it was an encouraging performance, something they can be proud of, walk away with their head head held high, and then go on the rest of their schedule and beat some people maybe they shouldn't have been expecting to beat beforehand. Same thing now. Are they going to respond by using this as a chance to grow? Disappointing loss, but look, we just hung with Alabama for four quarters and had them on the damn ropes. Or are they going to continue to do the thing that Texas has been doing over the past decade and slip up in two weeks whenever they play? I don't have their schedule in front of me, but Texas Tech or, you know, West Virginia or whoever. Like, if Texas – I did go through earlier and looked at their schedule. Right now they're one and one, so they have ten games left. They should be favored in, I think, seven of those ten games. Um, that's just me going off my head what I think, you know, the spreads would be. But if they can win seven more games out of the next 10 on their schedule and the harder games are not for a while down, down the road, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State and Baylor, I think are the three that they might be an underdog in. But a couple of those will probably be pretty close spreads, especially if they can just beat the teams that they're supposed to beat. Like, that's what they have to do. And if they do that, let's just give them seven out of ten of the next game. So beating everybody I think they'll be favored against. They'll finish the season eight and four, and they'll go from five and uh, seven last year to eight and four this year, almost, you know, not doubling your win total, but going from five wins to eight wins, that's about as much as even a crazy fan could ask for improvement-wise in one year. So if they can just do that, you know, Hudson Card, I don't know if he's supposed to be playing the next week or two. He was able to finish out the Bama game. But if viewers can come back against Oklahoma or even a little bit later and have a really strong finish to the year and Texas can just beat the teams they're supposed to beat, then I think that this is a season they can be really proud of and build on going forward. So that's all from Austin. Next, we go to College Station, uh, just a couple hours away. And we will talk about Appalachian State beating the Fighting Texas Aggies 17-14. to Like I said on the preseason podcast this year, everybody got super high on A&M because they signed one of the best recruiting classes ever. And that's great. Good for them. They've had a lot of good classes recently, and this one was historic. They made a lot of noise in the offseason with the Jimbo Saban thing. But I told y'all every year... There's, you know, a couple of those top teams that don't really pan out. And I said, I just don't think A&M is going to be able to live up to the hype and the consistency that the AP poll suggested they would being ranked number six in the uh, number six in the country before the season started. Sure enough, everyone got a little too high on them, maybe too a little too soon, maybe way too soon that, you know, we'll see that down the road. But they're just not ready. Just because they had a recruiting class of a bunch of stud five stars coming into College Station this fall doesn't mean all of those guys are playing yet or developed yet or up to weight yet. So it's still this is still a lot like the AM team we saw last year. The offense is still archaic. It's still not working. Haynes King uh, does not look like the answer at all. 
He was Jimbo's guy that he picked this offseason. He only had 97 passing yards uh, against App State on Saturday, which leads me to believe that there has to be a quarterback change coming soon. Max Johnson transferred to A&M from LSU over the offseason, and it would frankly be shocking if we didn't see him at least at some point when A&M gets the Miami Hurricanes coming to town this week. So they have no no time to breathe. They're, you know, they're into the thick of their schedule right now. App State, this, the score looks close. The game really didn't feel close because App State dominated A&M on the lines of scrimmage and the box score all day long. The time of possession battle was 42 minutes to 18 minutes in favor of App State. They had the ball the whole game. The total yards gained were 315 to 186 in favor of the Mountaineers. And another fun stat I heard, Texas A&M has literally run the fewest amount of plays in the entire country, number 130 out of 130 FBS teams. So they've got a lot to figure out really quickly there in College Station when it comes to that offense. Um, I didn't really think that App State would be able to get up like this two weeks in a row. Like, I mean, clearly now everyone knows that they're a really good team. But after a heartbreaking loss at home to UNC week one, I just... You know, I didn't think that they'd be able to sneak up on AM. Not that App State should be sneaking up on anybody after all of their success and close calls. I don't know why anyone schedules them. And if Alabama does, I will just not watch the game ever. But uh, yeah, so that was really, really bizarre outcome, especially when you look and see that the, uh, the, game on the field was not nearly as close as the score may make it seem. Um, A&M, like I alluded to a couple minutes ago on the preseason pod, every year in college football, there's basically at least one team that starts in the top 10 that ends up completely out of the top 25. A&M was my prediction to be that one team this year. They started out sixth. Now they're 24th. But they could be doing worse because the next team on our agenda to talk about, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, started out fifth and after an 0-2 start to the season, are no longer ranked in the AP Top 25. They lost to Marshall 26-21. Marcus Freeman is the first head coach at Notre Dame to ever start his tenure 0-3. This was his home debut that got spoiled by the Thundering Herd. This was another game that really wasn't even as close as the final score may look. Uh, just a five-point victory might make you think it was a close game, but Marshall, like App State, completely dominated the line of scrimmage, completely put Notre Dame's quarterback in hell. Uh, their starter, Tyler Buckner, is out for the season with a shoulder injury, so they had to go to their backup. Uh, Notre Dame accounted for three turnovers. I thought they really had a good season in store after battling Ohio State really well um, in Columbus and even controlling that game for over half of it. Uh, but it might be a long season for the Fighting Irish. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make out of this one. Uh, I do need to give some credit to the Sun Belt because both Marshall and App State and Georgia Southern, who we'll get to in a little bit, all beat Power Five opponents. Marshall and App State beating top twenty-five opponents. So a really huge day for the Sun Belt. These teams are clearly no joke. But a Notre Dame, a Texas A&M, especially Nebraska is a different deal. We all know. But those types of teams have no business getting outmanned and outpowered by a Notre Dame uh, or a Marshall or an App State. So 
it's just, uh, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around it. And I don't know where Marcus Freeman goes from here. They play Cal next week, which they should win, but who knows at this point. And, you know, they have some interesting matchups in the ACC and the Pac-12 going forward. So he didn't inherit a bad situation like some, you know, first-year head coaches do. Like Notre Dame still had a really good roster. We all know their challenges and why they haven't been able to keep up with the Ohio States and the Clemsons and the Alabamas consistently on a playoff basis uh, over the past many years. But there's no reason to just get pushed around by a Sunbelt team all day long. But congratulations to Marshall. That sure was fun for me to watch. Uh, so I enjoyed that one thoroughly. But yeah, tough times in South Bend at the beginning of the Marcus Freeman era. BYU defeated Baylor 26-20 uh, to 20 in two overtimes. BYU actually lost their top two wide receivers just a little bit before this game started. Uh, their QB, Jaron Hall, had a really great game regardless. Baylor had 14 penalties, so that was probably the difference in the game. And you have to imagine if they can just take out a third of those, it might not even go to overtime. BYU did miss a field goal uh, to win the game at the end of regulation. But Baylor had no points in either OT, and BYU was able to capitalize on that, uh, on Baylor's mistakes, despite them missing an opportunity to win at the very beginning. Provo is just a super tough place to play at any time, but especially at night. The crowd there was absolutely awesome, uh, if you didn't see the scenes and the highlights from that night. So BYU, they have a really, really interesting schedule this year. They have no break. They go to Oregon to play in Eugene on this upcoming Saturday. Kentucky upset Florida in the swamp. Florida's high-flying start to the season uh, gets nixed pretty quick. Florida was up 16-7 to in the second half. Uh, they had forced, uh, well, they didn't force. Kentucky snapped the ball 30 yards over their punter's head and had to kick it into the end zone to extend the Florida lead from 14-7 to 16-7. The swamp was rocking, a lot of momentum after the game last week, and it was looking like Kentucky uh, might have some trouble keeping up after that point in the second quarter. However, Kentucky scored, from that point on, the last 19 points in the game, shutting Florida completely out in the second half. Anthony Richardson, who was everyone's pivot Heisman pick after week one against Utah, who did have a great game in week one, really mightily struggled against this Wildcat uh, defense. He went 14 for 35 with 143 yards, two touchdowns, and only four yards on six rushing carries, a 3.8 QBR. So he was couldn't have been you know a more bipolar player the first two weeks of the year. Um, he had a pick six in the game and another interception that was returned inside the Florida 10-yard line. Kentucky was pretty determined to not let him run the ball. They clearly did a phenomenal job with that. And he just was completely lost trying to toss the ball around the swamp. He was not very accurate. Looked like he had no control over his passing or the game in general. So his Heisman hype train grinds to a quick halt. Uh, you know, it's still super early, so I don't want to say he can't, he can't still make some noise in that. But he does not have much room for another game like that anymore with the quarterbacks around the country that he's competing with for the Heisman Trophy. Uh, to talk about Kentucky for a little bit, they have lost, 
or they lost 31 straight to Florida from 1986 to 2018, and now Kentucky has won three of the last five and two in a row. Um, so it's just, you know, you, you cannot go on long enough about how great of a job Mark Stoops has done. He just passed Paul Bear Bryant for the most wins all time at Kentucky. Yes, Bear Bryant coached at Kentucky early in his career before he got to Tuscaloosa. So congratulations to Coach Stoops, another uh, just amazing upset win. And, you know, with the, the horrors that Florida has given them over the past several decades, uh, it's you know that, that that one still means a lot to Kentucky, especially passing up the bear for that big of a milestone. So Florida gonna have to bounce back. Kentucky moving on two and zero on the season. Tennessee beat Pittsburgh thirty four to twenty seven in OT. This was an entertaining game, not really a pretty game. Uh, Pitt got up ten zero early in the first quarter. They were about to go up seventeen zero, but Slovis threw an interception in the end zone. Uh, yeah, Keaton Slovis, the USC uh, quarterback transfer for Pitt, got injured right before half and didn't return. So Tennessee was able to play the backup in the second half. He still put up a good fight. Both teams had a couple turnovers. Tennessee wasn't able to move the ball very consistently for a lot of the game, but they were able to hold Pittsburgh off. In overtime, the defense did a really good uh, job for Tennessee getting pressure, holding that run game in decent check, and uh, giving the the both Pittsburgh quarterbacks just a lot a lot in their face when they were trying to pass the ball. So that's a really big win for Tennessee. Um, after last year's disappointing loss against Pittsburgh, where Tennessee had to go to their backup quarterback, uh, definitely meant a lot to that program to get a ranked road win for sure before they get into the grind of their SEC schedule coming up. And lastly, quickly, <laughs> Iowa State beat Iowa 10-7 to in the annual non-conference Cyhawk game. This was the first time Iowa State had won this matchup since 2014. They have been a good program since then, but they just find really creative, heartbreaking ways to lose to their in-state rival, the Iowa Hawkeyes. Uh, however, this year, the Iowa offense was just far too little for there to be any type of a chance for Iowa to really make an effort to win this game. Uh, they got up 7-0, then didn't score for the rest of the game, uh, allowing Iowa State to score the last 10 unanswered. Iowa now has 14 points total uh, combined from their first two games of the season. They have statistically, by far, the worst offense in the country, only scoring one touchdown on the year and having the worst uh, worst offensive stats uh, from the second-worst team by 74 yards per game and about half a yard per play. So that's really, really bad. Um, if I think I mentioned it last week, but Brian Ferentz is the offensive coordinator there, and his dad is the head coach. So Iowa fans have been getting really upset about the nepotism situation going on there in Iowa City. Some Iowa fan paid at least $250 to get Bob Stoops, the former legendary Oklahoma head coach who went to Iowa to do a cameo. And I don't know if he knew or not exactly what he was doing. Maybe so. But Bob Stoops uh, did a cameo basically just saying a guy named Brian needed to move on from the family business and uh, find a new career path. And that went viral over the internet. So whether Bob caught on to what was happening there, I'm not going to say, but um, 
yeah, really bad situation going on for the Hawkeyes because their defense is good enough to be a player in the Big Ten West. So it's not like they're just like shitty on both sides of the ball. I mean, clearly they held Iowa State to 10 points and last year uh, or last week, whoever the hell they played, I forget, they held them to three points. So the defense is good enough to compete in the Big Ten, but there's just no way that the offense is going to be able to get to a point where they're any actual threat this year. It was a lot like last season, if you remember. They had like the most turnovers in the country, and at one point they got up to like number two, I think, after Alabama lost. But when they got into the meat of their schedule on the back half, their offense was clearly proven to be fraudulent, and they couldn't rely on their defense to win them every single game with five turnovers. So... That's it on week two. Some quick news going forward before we get into segments and week three preview. Um, Michigan announced that their starting quarterback will be the five-star sophomore, J.J. McCarthy. He won the job over Cade McNamara. Anyone who's been keeping up with this situation, really strange situation in Ann Arbor, uh, this is not surprising. Cade McNamara was the senior incumbent who won them the game against Ohio State and the Big Ten and the college football playoff appearance last year. Um, But when he was coming into the season and Jim Harbaugh said, okay, Cade is going to start the first game against Colorado State, and then McCarthy is going to start the second game against Hawaii, most people figured that wouldn't be happening if Harbaugh didn't want McCarthy to be the guy uh, ultimately to get the nod for the season for the Wolverines. That was just a little bit easier way, I think, for them to let McNamara off of the hook for starting Um, Which, you know, I mean, that had to be a really hard and delicate situation for those coaches to deal with. But by all accounts, McCarthy has the higher ceiling and gives the Wolverines a better chance this year to make it back to their second consecutive uh, college football playoff. With the defense losing a good bit from last year, uh, we still haven't seen them play any real competition, and we won't until October, unfortunately. But, you know, they lost Hutchinson and a couple other big pieces of that defense that helped carry that team to the playoff. The offense is probably going to be in a couple games later in the season where the quarterback has to win it for them, and they felt like McCarthy was the guy who was more likely and able to do that. So J.J. McCarthy starting in Ann Arbor for the rest of the year. Big news out of Nebraska, as previously discussed, uh, as we get into our hot seat of the week presented by Lee Corso. Scott Frost, it finally comes to an end. I think when I started this segment in one of the very first podcasts that I did last season, um, I, th- I I think Scott Frost was the first person. You know, I do this in descending order, hot seat, who's the hottest, and it cools off as we go down the list. And I believe he was the first person on the list. Uh, that was either right before or right after Nebraska laid the egg to Illinois in week zero. Of course, deja vu this year with the egg they laid in Dublin against Northwestern. Scott Frost ends his career at a record of 16-31 and 31 in four seasons plus three games. This firing super coincidentally came to Georgia Southern, who, if you didn't know, is coached by Clay Helton, who USC fired after week two last year. So that's just an interesting little tidbit. Um, his Scott Frost buyout was $15 million. On October 1st, 
it was set to reduce to $7.5 million, and Nebraska decided to fire him three weeks before it would have dropped $7.5 mil. Now, Frost had a renegotiated contract going into this season saying, basically, you know, if you don't win, we're going to end up paying you less money than your original contract would have said, but we'll let you stick around because we respect you, because you played here in the 90s, and we all want this to work. Well, it didn't work, and the only, I don't know, the, the whole buyout thing is super weird because it's like, their season's already screwed. Like, <laughs> they're not going to make it to a bowl game. Why not just wait out the next three weeks and save yourself $7.5 million that you could use to buy out some future coach out of his current contract? Um, I don't know if they paid the full $15 million. I was listening. One of my other favorite college football podcasts is the Andy Staples Show, and they seemed pretty sure that there was probably a negotiation. So Frost didn't get the full $15 million, but he got more than 7.5, so maybe somewhere in the you know, 10, 12 range. I don't know. That's just totally speculation, but just a really strange situation. Like, seems like they could not have gotten him out of there soon enough. Um, so they play Oklahoma this week. Oklahoma is about a 14 or 14 and a half points favorite, depending on where you're looking. Sometimes we see teams bounce back after this type of a firing and come out and play really strong, uh, you know, above their ceiling. And so that'll be interesting to watch. That's the early game um, in Lincoln. We'll get more into their coaching search, um, who they might hire. It's, you know, it, who knows at this point. I saw Matt Campbell's name get mentioned a lot on Twitter. Um, you know, Mark Stoops probably would be a candidate that I think anyone in the country would be basically happy with right now. Um, I don't know. We'll we'll just have to see. Nebraska's a really weird coaching situation because traditionally, yes, it is one of the you know great college football programs, but with all of the all of the troubles over the past 10 years. And it's just, you know, you have to wonder, would Matt Campbell, would Mark Stoops, would they really leave their currently great programs that they've built in Iowa State and Kentucky, respectively, to go and completely have to rebuild this Nebraska program that's been a train wreck from the ground up or would they just rather either stay where they are or wait for maybe a way more appealing job where a lot of people have had a lot more success open up if they were thinking about making a move for more money in the future I don't know we'll see we'll kind of keep you all updated on that as the situation progresses but right now it's just it's just you could do a whole podcast on the list of possible coaches, so I'm not going to get into get into that much more. Um, otherwise, not really much on the hot seat changed. Um, let's see here. Harson obviously has a big one coming up this weekend against Penn State. I did not see any of the Auburn game, but everything I saw on Twitter suggested that they might have some serious personnel issues and struggled with San Jose State on the Plains last Saturday. So uh, we'll talk about that one in a second. Herm Edwards, obviously, uh, they lost. Arizona State lost at Oklahoma State. His days feel very numbered. Jeff Collins, still right up there with the rest of this pack. Scott Satterfield, they actually had, Louisville had a really big bounce back win against UCF on Friday night when they were about a touchdown underdog. 
Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know. We'll see about him. I, I don't have faith in him being there next year, but Louisville, they've been all over the place the first two weeks, so I have a hard time predicting that one. Um, and then lastly, uh, Dino Babers at Syracuse. They started out 2-0, and really surprisingly, so one more win, and he might get off the list for a little bit. So we'll keep an eye on the on the Qs. They play Purdue in the Carrier Dome. And Jimbo? Hmm? Who said that? Uh, who's not back of the week presented by Texas. I might have to take the Texas part of that off of that for a couple weeks as I continue to cool down, cool down for this game. Uh, we've already talked about all these teams, the Texas A&M, Notre Dame, and Nebraska, all losing to Sunbelt teams. Congrats to the Sunbelt. Shame on the three of y'all power five teams or, you know, Notre Dame, close enough, independent, whatever. Uh, not back at all. Week three preview now. Um, last weekend that we have coming up here of mostly out of conference games by the time we reach the following Saturday on the 24th, most teams are getting into, you know, the first game of their conference schedule. If they're not already game day announced that they are going to Boone, North Carolina for the first time ever for Appalachian state, Troy. Unfortunately, that game is only on ESPN plus, but I'm really happy for the Mountaineers getting to host it. If you saw any of the scenes of Boone after they defeated Texas A&M last year or last week, you know that it'll be a great, probably pretty rambunctious crowd there for game day when they roll in town. It's always so much more exciting when a school like that gets game day instead of them going to Alabama or LSU or Ohio State for like the third time in a single season. That's super exciting for those kids. And I love the one week they go and kind of do a, you know, a game that's a little bit more off the map. So I can't wait to see all the all the pictures from Boone on Saturday morning. I unfortunately don't have too much to say about the Appalachian State Troy game other than go app. So we'll move on to number two. 22 Penn State at Auburn. <sighs> I don't know about this one, man. Um, I, I mean, I think Penn State definitely has the better roster and more talented team. You know, I mean, anyone who watched Penn State play uh, Purdue the first week of the season knows exactly what I'm talking about when it's just hard to put much faith in Sean Clifford. However, Auburn looked not good from what everyone said last week, and it sounds like they are seriously going to struggle with their personnel and overall level of talent this year. Penn State is a three-point favorite in this game. I know all of my Auburn buddies are kind of chomping at the bit for this one after the game last year that ended in pretty disappointed fashion uh, for the Tigers up there in Happy Valley. I think Penn State will win this game. Um, I've just seen way too many games like this get really weird at Auburn, so I wouldn't be touching the minus three with the 10-foot pole. <laughs> but I'm excited to watch it. It's probably the game. I don't know. It's not going to be the prettiest game by any means this weekend, but probably the one I'm most interested to see. Um, we have number 12 BYU playing at number 25 Oregon. Surprisingly, Oregon is a three and a half point favorite. That one feels pretty fishy to me. Um, kind of like the Penn State line, really. After BYU got the big win against number nine Baylor on national TV, uh, last Saturday, and Oregon, the only time ever, anyone's really seen them this year was when they were getting their 
doors blown off in Atlanta by Georgia. So I definitely am interested in the points with BYU there. Um, there's just still so much to learn about this Oregon team and Bo Nix quarterbacking them. So I'll probably end up on that BYU side, but right now I'm going to have to look a little bit more. It's not a best bet by any means. I'm going to have to look more into that and uh, see if see if that's kind of a trap or not. But that one should be really interesting. Uh, it is at 1.30 on Saturday, which is the same time as Auburn, Penn State, in case I forgot to mention that. A couple of night games. We've got Miami at Texas A&M. Miami is number 13, and A&M is number 24 in the latest AP poll. However, A&M is a five-point favorite, which also seems really weird to me after last week. That doesn't start until 8 o'clock Central Time, um, and I definitely gave you the Oregon and Auburn games in Mountain Time. So those are 2.30. Texas A&M is at 8 o'clock. The Aggies have a big opportunity here to bounce back and get their season back on track before things get really hard in the SEC. Miami, their quarterback, from what I've heard, has looked really good. They've just played a couple of scrubs so far this year. Um, I know that they have gotten off to a slow start in, in on the game last week against uh, Southern Miss. So maybe, I mean, how could they not be more alive for this one going to college field at College Station, Kyle Field, at 8 o'clock at night to play the Aggies. I don't know. I, I, I think Miami wins this one outright, but the line just tells me that they know something I probably don't. So we're going to see. I, I, I don't know if Haynes King or Max Johnson is going to start for A&M. I do know, regardless of which it is, Tyler Van Dyke, the quarterback at Miami, is going to be better than either of them. So I'm going with the Canes here. I don't get why A&M is getting all those points after they just got absolutely bodied by App State up and down the field all day long. Maybe they'll they'll come out and have a way more inspired performance. Uh, you know, it's obviously one of the toughest places in the pl- in the country to play, especially at nighttime. But I just think the Hurricanes have have a better system, and even though they're still putting everything into place with the new Cristobal regime, I just. I, I, I don't trust A&M after how slow they started against Sam Houston State in week one and then last week against App getting dominated all 60 minutes. So maybe they'll come out and live up to more of the expectation, which we've seen. I don't think Miami will run away with it at all, but yeah, we'll see. It's going to be a weird one. A lot of just tricky games this week. Uh, and then we have Mississippi State at LSU. Mississippi State is a two-point favorite here, not something you really hear very often in this rivalry. Um, That game is at 5 o'clock in Death Valley. State has looked really good the first two weeks. Their competition has not been the stoutest by any means, beating Memphis and Arizona um, last night or last week when they were on Pac-12 after dark. But their offense has been churning. LSU, obviously, their struggles were broadcasted to the entire nation on the first Sunday night against FSU. I just trust Mississippi State this year. The whole year three of Will Rogers being in the Mike Leach system, it seems to be living up to the hype so far this year. So that's the one favorite that I guess I feel good about out of these four games. You know, this is another place where things can just get weird at nighttime there in Death Valley. And LSU is going to be pretty desperate to, to, get, to get this win. So I think it's going to be a bit of a kitchen sink game for them, even though it's week three. Because if they lose this and then go down uh, to one and two on the season, it 
could it could quickly snowball into a pretty treacherous year for Brian Kelly and his staff, their first season in Death Valley. So that's it for the big games I have. Um, we're going to move on to the segments and wrap this up here. What I'll be watching, the best games in all three time slots. In the morning, uh, it's a pretty pretty weak morning slate, although that's what we thought last week about morning and afternoon and there ended up being upsets out of the wazoo so you never know but i'm gonna i'm gonna be tuning in to oklahoma at nebraska just to see if nebraska can have any maybe newfound energy uh now that scott frost is out of the building you really never know i don't think that they'll be able to hang with oklahoma all game but sometimes teams can come out and and play great when there's a new interim coach that maybe they like a lot better than the old guy uh so that's at 11 a.m. on Fox. Next, in the afternoon, 2.30 game. I'm most excited for Penn State-Auburn in that time slot. I think we're going to learn a lot about both of these teams in that game. That's on CBS. And finally, at nighttime, uh, I'm looking probably most forward to Miami A&M, seeing if A&M can bounce back and what what we're going to learn about Miami since they haven't played a Power 5 team yet. Uh, it should be really interesting to see how, however many quarterbacks play for A&M, how they do, how Tyler Van Dyke does against that crowd, um, and, and how Cristobal's team as a whole can just hold up um, in a really hostile road environment that in the ACC they are just frankly not used to. So that's all what I'm looking forward to in the time slots. Next, we have our Pac-12 after dark game of the week. Definitely not as great of a late night slate as we've had the last couple weeks, but Fresno State at USC could potentially be really interesting. Fresno State lost a heartbreaker to Oregon State last week, um, who is on the rise. Keep your eyes out for the Beavers. Fresno State, they have a really good squad as well. This feels like one of those games where USC traditionally has always been prone to slipping up. So that's at 9.30 p.m. on Fox. Uh, USC beat Stanford last week pretty handily, and that was kind of a sneaky sneaky upset pick for the Cardinal because they have done it to the Trojans so many times in years past. But so far, Lincoln Riley's crew has been taking care of business, but this will be their toughest game yet. My best bet, we don't have it for the upcoming week yet. Keep your eye on the Twitter, and I will release it sometime, probably Thursday or Friday. We moved to 2-0 and on the season. I picked Kansas State to cover the 7.5 at home against Missouri on Saturday morning. They got up big. There was a big rain delay. Kind of scared me a little bit, hoping they weren't falling asleep. They came out and kept rolling. 40-12, to easy, easy, easy cover as we move on to 2-0. and Go for 3-0. and Congrats to everybody who followed along for that. Lastly, as we wrap it up here, a little quick Hummus Tailgate Party ESPN Pick'em recap. Nate is still in first with a 14-6 and six against the spread record. He's in the 98th percentile on ESPN, so good job to Nate. Keep that up. And Dylan jumped into second place at 13-7, and seven, just one game back. And then yours truly had a good week last week, and I am tied with four others in third place. So that's all I've got. For this week's episode, thanks for listening along. We will be back next week for the usual recap and preview, and I hope everybody has a safe and enjoyable weekend. Bye-bye.